0: Hi there, this is Dan Kilbride. I'm the chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, and I'm also the host of New Books in American Studies. As most of you know by now, about once a week we find an author, or sometimes an author finds us, uh, who's written a book in American Studies, and that can mean anything from history, which it usually does on this show, uh, literary studies, public health, science, culture, you name it. Today, we are joined by Jonathan Daniel Wells, who is a professor of history and chair of the department at Temple University in Philadelphia. Uh, He is the co-editor of the Journal of the the Early Republic, and today we're going to talk to him about his book, Women Writers and Journalists in the 19th Century South, published by Cambridge University Press in 2011. Uh, Welcome, John Wells. Thank you, Dan, for the invitation. Uh, You're very welcome. Uh, I have a special soft spot in my heart for Southern history, Um, and uh, so I guess as a statement of personal prejudice, take it for what it's worth, but I think Southern history is, and has been for a long time, one of the uh, most exciting, well-grounded, and less crazy areas of history writing. Uh, I think uh, some of the scholarship on Southern history is absolutely fantastic. Certainly, we'd say that about slavery studies. But I also think Southern history has really uh, blazed a lot of trails in gender history and women's history in particular. I think some of the most exciting scholarship uh, in women's history and gender studies has been in the South. And so this book is taking its place within a pretty uh, exalted literary uh, pantheon. So, John, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, please.
1: Well, uh, I am, as you said, professor and chair uh, in the Department of History at Temple, and uh, I do nineteenth-century American history with a specialist with specialties in Southern history, uh, the Civil War, and the uh, late Antebellum period. Uh, To the um, two categories you mentioned, uh, gender and um, and women's history, uh, I would also add the study of class has been uh, really invigorated, I think, by some of the work done by Southern historians, and uh, hopefully I've contributed to that discussion in some small way. I think uh, a lot of the new work on uh, class, class consciousness, um, and the economic history of the slave South has uh, really caused us to rethink some of our basic assumptions about uh, the region, particularly in, in the antebellum period. And my first book, which was called The Origins of the Southern Middle Class, uh, touched on that issue. And then uh, this uh, second book, the second monograph on women writers and journalists in the region, uh, grew out of that, that first project.
0: One of the things I like to ask when I, when I talk about, when I talk to authors who have, when we're discussing their second or third book, is what's, there's, there's almost always a relationship. Between that first book and a second book, uh, is there one here, and how did you get from the southern middle class to women writers?
1: Yes, there definitely is here. Um, I think that's probably common because when you write your first book, you can only include so much material. and uh, there are lots of fascinating stories and angles and new information that that strike you that you aren't always able to uh, include uh, in the first manuscript, which usually uh is, is limited in terms of the number of of words uh, you can you can have in that book um, by the demands of university presses so in this case uh, I had touched on in, in the origins of the southern middle class book uh, I had touched on some of the women in the south who had edited their own newspapers and magazines because when I was talking about the middle class in the south, I wasn't talking about the yeomen uh, not the not the what we might call a rural middle class between. Uh, landless, uh, poor uh, whites who may work in agriculture and and planters. But instead, I was talking about more of an urban uh, middle class. And uh, the the assumption often is that the South had no real urban regions. But of course, uh, there were fairly large cities uh, in the South before the Civil War, including New Orleans, for example. And uh, there was a, a small but growing in size and growing in importance um, middle-class professional and commercial uh, group of Southerners, and that's who I really focused on. So included in that definition of the middle class um, were people who were uh, doctors and lawyers and merchants, but also people who were active in journalism, um, early early newspapers, that, that periodicals uh, that were published in the South uh, all throughout the antebellum years. And as it turns out, some of those professionals, um, some of those editors, and early journalists happened to be women. And uh, I knew that there had been some work done on northern women who edited their own newspapers and magazines uh, in the antebellum period. Sarah Josepha Hale is is pretty famous, for example, Mm -hmm. for having worked on Godey's and other uh, leading northern productions. Uh, But not many studies, uh, in fact, very, very few, had even acknowledge the existence of women who edited their own periodicals. So I touched upon that a little bit in the first book on, on the middle class, uh, categorizing these women as exemplars of middle class journalism. And then, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff that really didn't belong in the first book that was really specifically on these women. And I thought, well, since nobody's done a book-length study of, of black and white women editors and, and journalists, uh, in the South,
0: in the 19th century, I, I would do one. One of the things you uh, observe uh, in the introduction is that what scholarship there is out there tends to focus on uh, fiction and novel writers and novel readers. And, uh, you know, you focus in this book on, uh, on journalism, you women journalists, uh, editors and writers. How was the content... Of journalism and its relationship to sort of social conventions, different from what you find in novels and fiction.
1: That's a great question. Uh, You're right. There has been a a lot of uh, work done on novels um, by both women and men in in the South and in the North in the 19th century, and it's not surprising that historians have focused on them. They're they're a lot more accessible. Many libraries have copies Mm -hmm. of of uh, famous uh, novels, a- a- as well as more obscure ones. But the periodicals that were published are much, much harder to find. A few of them have been digitized by the uh, ProQuest company, for example, mm-hmm. which, is, which has done a great job of including some Southern productions uh, among their digitized offerings, but nowhere near uh, the number that are available in, in paper copies in uh, the corners of, of the South. And, and it just takes uh, some looking. And um, what interested me was the more obscure magazines. Many historians, uh, even those who don't really specialize in the 19th century, have probably heard of magazines like the Southern Quarter- Quarterly Review in the 1840s and 50s, and um, the Southern Literary Messenger, which was the longest-running magazine in the South from the early 1830s to the early 1860s, and then DeBoes Review, which was uh, more of a commercial magazine out of New Orleans. Those three uh, had been mined pretty well by scholars, particularly those of the, of the 19th century South. But I was always more interested in, in the more obscure productions, uh, the ones that were published in small towns in the South And um, what you find is that they are a lot more open and and freewheeling than you would uh, expect. Uh, There's a lot more talk about gender equality and the intellectual equality between uh, men and women. There's discussions of uh, the place of women's rights in Southern society. So I think there's a lot more to be learned. I I think really I just scratched the surface on Mm -hmm. uh, the amount of material that's actually out there. In fact, um, I just recently came across a, a Baltimore periodical that was uh, edited by a woman under the pseudonym Beatrice Ironsides, which fortunately <laughs> was a pseudonym, not her not her real name. But um, that was a production out of Baltimore in the early 1800s. So there's just a lot of these uh, newspapers and, and magazines, either women contributed to or women directly edited, uh, that um, I think scholars could, could make use of.
0: You kind of anticipated my next question a little bit in your previous answer, which was about uh, the openness of the South's literary culture. Um, you know, probably special what people who maybe historians or scholars, but even just the general public, probably has a conception of southern, antebellum southern culture as one that was uh, sort of had a siege mentality, was very closed, very conservative, very leery about newfangled ideas. How open was Southern literary culture, uh, particularly but not exclusively regarding the you know the the issue of women's rights, and what were the limits of that openness? What were the boundaries?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Uh, There were significant boundaries. Uh, Nowhere did I come across an instance, for example, in which uh, a woman uh, editor or a women a woman contributor question the legitimacy of slavery. Mm-hmm. So the bounds there were pretty clear. Uh, these were public documents, you know, they would be circulated uh, either through subscriptions that people bought through, you know, via the mail, the same way we, we often get magazines through the mail today. Um, or they would have been um, passed around from friend to friend, or they could even be deposited in a school library. So these are, are very public documents, and it was just as unacceptable to question slavery in the pages of these magazines, as it would have been if you had gone up you know, in the middle of the town square and, and started denouncing uh, human bondage. <laughs> so the, the limits there, as I said, uh, are clear. That just is not permitted. Um, yet, surprisingly, even given that caveat, these newspapers and magazines could be pretty open uh, in terms of discussing almost any other topic, including women's rights. And um, while there was no Seneca Falls uh, equivalent uh, in the South, there were a number of women who took public stances through these magazines um, uh, against uh, gender inequality. Rebecca Hicks, for example, was a a woman who edited a newspaper uh, near Petersburg, Virginia, called The Kaleidoscope in the the middle of the 1850s. And this weekly uh, periodical was about as bold an advocate of uh, gender equality and women's rights, as you would have seen uh, in, in a Standard Northern publication that uh, advocated a similar idea. So, it, it, was, it seems to have been permitted, um, I'm, I'm not sure you could argue that it was popular, but it seems to be it have been tolerated, uh, the fact that these women were um, articulating their their radical views on gender equality
0: could is there a possible explanation for this and is it true that generally you know women readers would read periodicals intended for women but also general magazines like the Southern Quarterly Review the Southern Literary Messenger but it it was probably unlikely that men would read magazines aimed at women is that right or am i wrong about that
1: no i, I think generally that's true if if a magazine had woman in the title or ladies, like for example, there was a Ladies Companion um, that was published in the South, then uh, that was pretty clearly targeted at a female-only audience. Mm -hmm. Um, But we know that uh, women also read magazines like the Southern Corridor Review because Louisa McCord, who was uh, fairly conservative, (laughs) actually very conservative, (laughs) South Carolina woman, uh, wrote for that magazine. So you know, we we know that she was she was engaged with it, but um, whether or not there was a gender separation in terms of reading material, the magazines that I came across were often surprisingly open uh, in appealing to to women's sense of at least intellectual equality. Mm-hmm. And what I argue in the book is that they started off with uh, these claims to intellectual equality, ma- making the argument that women were just as adept at mathematics or astronomy or uh, any other what you might call the sciences of a, or, or math uh, as men were, but they just hadn't been given the kind of opportunities uh, for education in those fields that men had been. And they, they begin with these discussions of um, gender intellectual equality, and that becomes the basis for their arguments for political equality in the South um, by the end of the 1800s.
0: mm mm-hmm. uh- this book makes some interesting uh, arguments about uh, similarities and differences in the antebellum and postbellum decades. But the question I want to ask you now is restricted to the pre-Civil War era. And that was: uh, What did women journalists do, uh, if anything, besides journalism? In other words, could a woman practice journalism and make a living? Or were most of these women writers and editors doing this as a supplement? To an income, uh, or as a uh, as a very time intensive hobby, you know. Uh, as a related question, how did one become an editor uh, of a newspaper or magazine before the Civil War? There were all different kinds of ways in which women became
1: editors. Uh, sometimes they became editors by default. For example, uh, Frances Blomstedt was um, a woman who edited a newspaper, sort of n- newspaper and magazine kind of combination. Oftentimes, there weren't the hard and fast uh, separation between a newspaper and a, and a magazine that we have today. But in this particular case, uh, her husband passed away. He was the editor of the Weekly Message in Greensboro. And uh, because they had, she had children to support, she was a widow, uh, she had little choice but to try and continue the magazine slash newspaper uh, on her own. And that, ha- that happened uh, fairly, fairly often. It happened to Sarah Hillhouse early on in, in Georgia in the late, late colonial period. So one of the major ways that women became editors was simply taking over an enterprise um, after their husbands had passed away and they had little mm-hmm. other means by which to support themselves and their children. Some of them uh, actually took it on directly a, as as a hobby. Uh, Caroline Gilman is um, a good example. And, and the word hobby Probably is not the best word that that, right. that diminishes, you know, what she was really interested in, which was mm-hmm. she was interested in contributing to literary culture and in in um, making a financial contribution to her family. So, because she had an interest in literature, she, she had interest in journalism and periodicals. Um, she embarked on a number of uh, magazines, some of which were designed for children, and, and others that were d- designed for adults. So there were women who who for lack of a better word, just because of their own interest in, in the field, decided to do it. And then finally, there, there are some of the outliers. Uh, there are women like Mary Chase Barney, uh, who is, uh, to my knowledge, really hasn't been appreciated uh, by historians, but she's, she's got to be one of the most outspoken political women uh, in the entire, entire Antebellum period, let alone um, the region uh, of the slave South. And she became an editor because her husband was fired by Andrew Jackson under his spoil system. <laughs> and she was so angry at the fact that her husband had been let go by, by Andrew Jackson that she wrote a, a long screed against uh, Jackson's <laughs> spoil system and his administration. And, of course, the Whigs ate this up and they, they printed her letter on, uh, in pamphlet form and on silk. So it could be displayed prominently. And then she started her, after she had written that letter, she started a magazine called The National Magazine. And um, this was a, a, out of Baltimore. It was a monthly magazine, and it was as political as any other newspaper uh, or magazine edited by a man before the Civil War. And she rarely missed an issue uh, and an opportunity to, to criticize Jackson. So in that case, she was neither a widow, um, but she she wasn't also she wasn't really following us. their were interests, but she felt like she had to do this to help support her family, vindicate her husband, mm-hmm. attack you know what she saw as the evils of the Jackson administration. So you know that was the that was the fun part of this book. And to me, to <laughs> me, it's the fun part of being a historian is you know you, you uncover these people um, and their ideas and and their work, whereas uh, they haven't been looked at before.
0: How did you find them? Uh, just just a, it, it, a question about the pure detective work aspect of this. You know, How did you track down these women who were sort of public figures in their time but are certainly obscure today?
1: Yeah, good question. Uh,
0: ProQuest
1: has now digitized uh, Mary Chase Barney's National Magazine. Uh, by the time I, I was working on my dissertation from the University of Michigan, uh, we didn't have access to the these riches on the internet that we do now. And uh, ProQuest actually had a microfilm series of, of periodicals that uh, you really have to, to uh, suffer through the, the dimly yep. dimly lit and <laughs> um, microfilm readings where if, at the time I was using an electronic microfilm reader and you'd press the button and it would skip over 100 pages in, in half a second. And then you'd have to go back, try to find out <laughs> where, yep. where you were. So it was really tedious. But, you know, that's, again, you have to have a, a perverse sense of what fun is um, to, to be driven to do this kind of thing. <laughs> so a lot of it was just trolling through microfilm and looking at these periodicals that uh, folks hadn't, hadn't seen before uh, or hadn't really um, seized on as an important topic before. And a lot of it was going to uh, archives uh, throughout the South. Um okay. The archive in uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, at the the, uh, Wilson Library, is very well known. The Southern Historical Collection. Um, But also the Perkins Library at Duke had a lot of pretty Mm -hmm. obscure magazines. Um, And even the Clements Library at the University of Michigan had a really obscure magazine called The Southern. And and was published in Tennessee in in 1841, 1842, which turned out to be really useful because there was this long-standing... Debate over gender equality that stretched over issues over six months. Wow! And that you know that happened to be deposited by somebody you know God knows when or how uh, at the University of Michigan. So you know, a combination of digitized sources that are more free, freely available now in microfilm uh, tediousness, and um, you know the, the fun of thumbing through an actual publication that may have survived uh, you know the, the decades. That, that's. That's how I tracked down these women. But the truth is, uh, it was hard to get even basic biographical information on some of these women. Um, Sometimes they changed their last names because they were married Mm -hmm. two or three times. Uh, And and oftentimes, you know, they didn't appear in uh, New York Times obituaries or national biographies or or any of the other sources that we can often turn to to discover the details of, of an individual's life. And so um, it really was, was hard sometimes to get some information on these people. I'll say just finally on, the, on this topic, there were in the middle of the 19th century a few collections of uh, women's poetry and, and women's essays that were published. And um, sometimes you could find out information about pretty obscure women uh, who, who are obscure now, but back in the 1840s or 50s, for example, might have been better known. And so would have been included in an anthology, oh, um, right. but you know, e- even then, it was just usually a, a cursory paragraph introduction and saying this woman hails from Savannah, or right. you know, not not much to go on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think if anybody was interested in in this further, I think there's still plenty of room to to do some more work on these these women.
0: Your answer brought back some just really disturbing memories of me spending just beautiful summer days in a dark room at the University of Florida Library uh, just staring at microfilm, good grief. Uh, It's a lot of Frisbee and probably good times, vitamin D that I wasted in in those rooms.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like Uh, I said, you have to have a a fairly perverse idea of what fun is. Um, Yeah. And, you know, you have to be driven to... Appreciate these these obscure characters, and and you know think that you're doing something worthy of all the time you put into it.
0: Yeah, it helps. Uh, another thing you address in your book that may uh, contradict some sort of uh, conventional wisdom, just that's out in the air, is the is the differences between the North and the South. You know, uh, people have a sort of general idea that the North and the South, they fought a civil war. They must have been very different, you know, culturally, politically, socially. Uh, And one of the things you do in your book is challenge uh, some of the ways in which uh, we conventionally think of the North and South as being different. How do you do that?
1: Well, uh, there were certainly significant differences between the north and the south and and the most obvious and and of paramount significance is the existence of slavery and in that sense southerners white southerners really did kind of intellectually circle the wagons as i mentioned earlier it was just not permitted uh to to question slavery and there's no no real indication that any of these women uh, i write about or or many many people in the South generally uh, were willing to question the, the legitimacy of slavery um, with or without, you know, making it public. So the differences are important uh, to be sure. And, and I think you can't really understand the coming of the civil war without understanding the significant significance of slavery. But when it comes to uh, other elements uh, of society and culture, particularly in this case, the, the issue of gender, uh, I, I don't think there was much difference at all between uh, the, the gender ideology of uh, the antebellum North and South. And, um, I mean, if you wanted to emphasize difference, uh, you would say, you know, we'll look at the Seneca Falls meeting in 1848 and the Seneca Falls Declaration, and you have these focal these, uh, women um, before the Civil War in the North, and, and that's true. And while at least so far we haven't uncovered a, a similar instance of women gathering in a kind of convention format like the Seneca Falls Convention. Nonetheless, one of the major, I hope, uh, contributions of my focus to show that there were women who were just as bold uh, in their advocacy of of gender equality as anybody on the North. And it shouldn't be surprising because it's not as if the North and the South lived in entirely separate, walled-off societies. Um, The late late, uh, Elizabeth Fox Genovese has has a very well-known book called Within the Plantation Household in which she makes the case uh, for gender differences between the North and the South. Um, The North, of course, having experienced the separation of home and work, uh, leaving women to sort of inherit the domestic sphere while men went to politics and, and work outside the home. And Elizabeth the, the late Elizabeth Fox and argues argue that in the South, of course, the course, of plantation was home and work combined. Um, so there wasn't that separation of, of gender ideology, but that would assume that the only, the only aspects of, of existence that women on plantations would have been, would have been uh, exposed to was those in their immediate surroundings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we know uh that women in the South, whether they were plantation mistresses, whether they were uh, middle-class or upper-middle-class wives of professionals, um, and whether they lived in towns or whether they lived in rural areas, uh, actively read magazines, novels, newspapers that were published in the North. And we know this uh, in a couple of different ways. One is that uh, women uh, Southern readers often remarked on uh, their reading, whether it was uh, the latest production from James Fenimore Cooper or Washington Irving or Melville or whatever. Uh, they would remark on, on their reading in the uh, in their diaries and in their letters, and we have numerous examples of that. But we also know that uh, Southerners, white Southerners, from rural areas to small towns to big cities. Uh, subscribed in, in surprisingly large numbers to northern periodicals. And uh, the postal records that we have uh, remaining in archives uh, across across the country testify to the fact that um, if you were a, a Southern woman, say in um, Charleston, South Carolina, before the Civil War, you might subscribe to Southern Quarterly Review. You might subscribe to Goatee's, you might subscribe to the Saturday Evening Post, or a couple other magazines, newspapers, other periodicals that that mix northern and southern uh, productions. So, the the short answer is that women were being exposed to all kinds of ideas coming from all over the place, and that's not even to mention uh, the substantial interest in European productions, which I know is Mm -hmm. near and dear to your heart, Dan.
0: That's right.
1: Um, But, you know, the Edinburgh Mm -hmm. Review was was very well-known and famous. Um, I just finished an article on Charles Dickens and the way in which he, his novels and his periodicals were widely read by Southerners. So at bottom, there's a lot more of an interchange um, intellectually between North and South uh, than I think historians have, have assumed.
0: Good. Well, we'll have to, I'll make a mental note. We'll have to talk about Dickens uh, at another time, because. I just finished an article, too, where I talked a lot about Dickens. So. Oh, okay. Um, I have two questions to spin off the last answer you gave. First of all, you observed that Southerners read a lot of Northern published magazines like Godey's, uh North American Review and so mm-hmm. forth. Did, to your knowledge, did Northerners read Southern magazines like the Southern Quarterly Review?
1: Yes, they did. Um, they, they often didn't think they were up to par uh, with, with Northern production. <laughs> But uh, yeah, they, we know uh, very well that um, not not just northern writers, but also European writers um, read and, and knew about productions from the south. There's a letter from Dickens uh, in which, right before he comes to America, which he acknowledges having read the Southern Quarterly Review, and you know says that he hopes to meet the editor when he when he comes to United States. Oh. Which never happens, of course, because Dickens doesn't go farther <laughs> the South of Richmond. Right. But yes, I mean, the answer to your question is that there's there's a tremendous exchange of periodicals going on all across the country, which we haven't really mapped out and we haven't really uh, appreciated, I don't think, to its full extent. But it means that, uh, you know, the sections knew exactly what the other, other was doing. And mm-hmm. because, uh, for the most part, you could exchange magazines for free, yeah. For example, if you edited a newspaper or a magazine, and I edited one, we, you know, we could exchange them free of charge for the postal system, and then, you know, we could acknowledge each other's um, each other's um, endeavors. So that that kind of uh, spurred on this exchange uh, as well.
0: Yeah, another question regarding uh, detective work, and you know, it, it's so impressive uh, the way that you found these you know, very obscure magazines like The Southern, which just happened to be by the grace of God at the University of Michigan Library. I think one of the really impressive parts of this book is where you discuss what people read and how they reflected on what they read. Uh, Many of these uh, observations are culled from the private diaries and letters, uh, almost all of which are unpublished, uh, the existing in one place in manuscript libraries, uh, how did you find uh, individuals' reflections on what they read? Did this just require reading just reams and reams of letters and diaries, and hoping to find that needle in the haystack?
1: Um, oftentimes, yes. So, <laughs> first of all, I appreciate your your kind words about the research, but <laughs> you know, um, I relied heavily on finding aids, which uh, are the are the lifesaver for many a historian and um, oftentimes in the in the finding aids um, a librarian would have have noted um, you know th- this woman in her diary comments on having read Melville and Emerson for example and then I would, I would go and sometimes it was just a you know a list of what they had been reading recently or, or really a cursory uh, men- mm-hmm. mentioning which wasn't particularly helpful other than just to, to sort of reassert the importance of this intellectual exchange between north and the south, but other times it was uh, it was more expensive. And um, women commented on uh, their favorite authors and why they were their favorite authors or people they didn't particularly appreciate. So, yeah, it was it was um, many years of uh, going through the archives and looking at finding aids and and sometimes taking a shot in the dark at a diary that didn't have a finding aid, but nonetheless. It looked like it was more than a, um, a listing of, of temperatures for the day, uh, which sometimes, you know, it takes up a lot of diary. I, I remember also going, I think this was at the historical uh, collection in New Orleans. Uh, really, it looked like a promising diary from a woman uh, before the Civil War. And it was just this unbelievably detailed uh, <laughs> account of what her son was doing. Um, I mean, at a detailed daily basis, um, which, you know, is no doubt of interest to her, uh, but, you know, in terms of uh, what I was interested <laughs> in getting at was of no use whatsoever. So, yeah, there's a lot of swing and misses, um, but, again, the strange uh, sense of fun that one derives from these kinds of projects <laughs> is what keeps you going, and even if you just um, hit on, you know, 20% uh, uh, of, of material as being useful... that's that's the part that goes into making a book.
0: Yeah, it's a lot like baseball. If you're hitting 250, you're doing okay.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, (laughs) um, One of the topics you touch on in your book is education, uh, which is obviously related to reading and and writing and so forth. Uh, How did opportunities for your women's education and also justifications for women's education change over the long 19th century period in the South? Mm
1: Yeah, good question. Um, uh, This has been something that historians have also stressed as sort of a fundamental difference between North and South, arguing um, at at bottom that there were opportunities for public education in the North uh, that didn't exist in the South. And it's really, uh, this part is, is true, that it's really not until after the Civil War that Southern states began to appreciate the importance of elaborate, structured public school systems. But before the Civil War, um, Southerners uh, sought education for, for their daughters in, in many other ways. Uh, there were boarding schools, there were community schools, there were all kinds of opportunities uh, for middle-class and upper-class white women. And uh, again, it, it just makes sense to qualify this because we're not talking about African-American uh, free right. women, we're not talking, obviously, about slaves. We're not talking about even working-class white women. We're talking about people who could afford private education. And within those limitations, within those very significant boundaries, uh, it's um, it's interesting the extent to which communities embraced their schools for, for girls and young women. Almost every uh, one of these institutions had uh, at the end of the school year and and then periodically throughout the school year um, public performances. And there would be people coming from all around the region um, and, of course, all around the town in which the college was located uh, to hear these performances and to to cheer the girls and young women on. And Mary Kelly's uh, important book, uh, Learning to Stand and Speak, talks a lot about this as well. And Mm -hmm. and my findings in, in this book on women writers and journalists Pretty, pretty much confirms what Mary Kelly was arguing, which is that even though these are not public school systems in, in a sense that we commonly refer to today, they had a lot of public and community support um, that was expressed in all different kinds of ways. So uh, there were efforts in the later antebellum period to establish school systems in New Orleans, uh, particularly in the origins of the Southern middle class. Uh, my first book, I, I talked a lot about some of these um, Southerners who are writing to Horace Mann in Massachusetts asking for advice on how to set up school systems in their own communities. Um, But particularly uh, as we get into the 1880s and 1890s, the opportunities for white women uh, emerge pretty significantly uh, for public school systems. For African American women, the story is, is a bit more complicated. There are, of course, almost no opportunities for any sustained education for African-American free uh, or slave women before the Civil War. But once the Freedmen's Bureau um, engages in the South after the Civil War and, and starts to educate thousands of African-Americans, it's just remarkable, it's it's, it's really impressive how quickly not only literacy spreads, but opportunities um, for African-American periodicals explodes rapidly as well so for African American women the, the clock is a lot later it's not really until sort of the, the reconstruction period and particularly uh, in the decades after where they're able to take advantage of their interest in magazines and newspapers mm-hmm. but it, it happens there also
0: uh, one of the things you talk about in your in your book is what you label uh, sort of literary culture um, and uh, you know, sort of what women got out of writing and reading and, you know, what it meant for them to to be engaged in the sort of uh, regional and national conversation about these various issues. You know, what what did women find in these magazines that you discuss? You know, one of the words you that often attached to them was eclectic,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which meant sort of a grab bag of different things. Um, what did reading mean to women and what what did they read in these magazines
1: mm-hmm. yeah eclectic is definitely the, the right word to use um, and, and that's different I, I suppose than some of the the other magazines that we know well like the Southern Quarterly Review for example which was uh, pretty much a straight line table of contents of uh, very sort of learned essays and um, the Southern Literary Messenger had essays and re- and reviews of fiction, and they had they had occasionally uh, instances of, of poetry as well, uh, including mm-hmm. some by by women. And then in eighteen forty uh, or so, there's uh, the the Southern Literary Messenger actually publishes the only example that I know of in the antebellum interpe- 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 period um, poetry by a slave named George Moses Horton. Hmm. Did not
0: know. Yeah,
1: that. who who. Uh, was a slave uh, near Chapel Hill in North Carolina. So the women's magazines that I that I looked at were really even more eclectic than than either the Messenger or the Southern Quarterly Review. In that they would have book reviews. Um, any of the, the major authors, Melville, Hawthorne, uh, they were all reviewed. Uh, in the productions of of southern the southern novelist, William Gilmore Sims. Uh, books by by women uh, novelists, they were all reviewed in the pages of these women's magazines, but they also would often contain um, news about um, domestic life, you know, advice on cooking, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or on child-rearing, or essays on women's education. Uh, so they're really fascinating windows, I think, um, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who finds this fascinating, <laughs> but uh, I, I, really, I really do, especially these obscure ones, because a lot of these uh, women, for example, they would have written a letter to the editor, or they would have written a poem, and, and perhaps that's the only time in their entire lives that they appear in print, this, this uh-huh. one time. So the, it's an interesting combination of, of completely obscure no, women who are ordinary, you know, just ordinary people. Uh, and the work of literary giants at the time, like Dickens. And um, the same is true for African American periodicals after this after the Civil War they're they're very eclectic uh, they're, they're magazines that cover all different kinds of topics side by side. and you really had to be able to jump from one subject to another from history to uh, an article on science to a po- to a poem to an article on you know d- domestic life. so, That was part of the fun, too. You really get into uh, a window into what people are interested
0: in. Well, yeah, I think uh, it is interesting. I mean, a lot of what we know about just not just Southern life, but Lutheran life is what I guess you'd call intellectual history, as opposed to what you're doing, at least in this section of the book, which is more about cultural history, more about what ordinary people read and understood. I, I guess it's the difference between Reading, uh, you know, uh, uh, in today's day, a you know a specialized chemistry journal, uh, and then reading you know, Reader's Digest. Mm-hmm. Well, you may get if Reader's Digest even exists anymore. I don't, I don't know that, but you might have articles on home economics, cooking, science. You know what's going on in Syria, all in the same thirty-page, you know, uh, bundle of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's really what you're getting at.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true, and. I, to the extent that it was successful, I mean, that's open for debate because many of these these magazines only lasted a short time.
0: That's right. Both
1: productions by men and women. Um, you know, a lot of them only lasted a few issues, some um, six months or a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So some of these are, are are magazines that did not, I'm sure, get a, a wide readership. And, and one of the problems is, for all for all historians talk about Southern Honor, uh, very and you see it in the pages of these magazines. <laughs> Please pay. Yeah, exactly. Please from the editors to, to yeah. pay your damn subscription. Um, and apparently that was a real problem, not just real in women's problem. magazines, but in you know for periodicals all across the board.
0: True in the North as well, as you point out there, right? I yeah. mean, you know, we, we tend to think of the South is you know, again, it's got this reputation as this sort of anti-intellectual culture. And one of the pieces of evidence is always dragged out is all those cries from editors, you know, pay up your subscription, but the same is going through in the North. I mean, there are plenty of examples of periodicals that last a couple of months or a year because they just can't make it work.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, How did women authors and editors deal with the dilemma of celebrity? Uh, You know, inevitably, or maybe even on purpose, calling attention to themselves as, public figures. You know, why was this a dilemma, and how did women authors and editors deal with it?
1: Interesting, uh, interesting topic, actually, because there was a, a book by a famous uh, history, literary scholar named Michael Winship that um, generally argued that there was a, a fundamental difference between the North and the South, that women thought celebrity in, in the North in a way that they didn't in the South. But the truth is that um, the vast majority of poems, essays, um, advice, whatever it was, um, in in these magazines, women actually signed their name to. Hmm. And um, the women who edited these newspapers and magazines, they don't hide the fact that they're women. Um, Mary Barney's name appears prominently on the cover of the National Magazine. Rebecca Hicks name appears prominently uh, on the title page of the kaleidoscope that she edits in Virginia so it, it varied from woman to woman there were there were some women who were definitely uh, reticent to uh, have their names in public and so they would use a pseudonym uh, or they would publish anonymously or they would they would um, sign with initials mm-hmm. um, but there were men who did that too and uh, there were more women who actually, were quite open about um, owning their editorship or owning their authorship uh, of particular pieces. I think it definitely varied um, regarding the individual. Mary Elizabeth Lee, for example, was a poet in Charleston, and she was uh, apparently painfully shy. And she knew Caroline Gilman and, and her husband Samuel Gilman, who wrote the um, the, um the theme song, the uh, alma mater for Harvard. Um, she knew them well, and she knew some other people in, in Charleston well, but she was uh, pretty much a recluse, as far as I can I can tell. And uh, she, e- even though she wasn't part of public uh, culture in terms of being out there in society, she always signed her productions um, with her name. So we know very well what she contributed and uh, there were other women, and clearly Mary Barney is one, but you know she's perhaps one of the most obvious examples. But there are also women, both white women before the Civil War and, and black and white women after the Civil War, who uh, were were open in in regard to um, being literary celebrities. There is uh, an African American uh, female editor after the Civil War named Mary Cook. She uses uh, the pseudonym Grace Ermine. Um, but generally, the friends of these people, the people who lived in the neighborhood, uh, the town around them they knew they knew who who was behind the pseudonym, um, and then there were other african American women who were openly um, putting putting their names on these productions so it's not true uh, that there was a fundamental difference between North and South in regard to women's reluctance uh, to embrace a literary reputation
0: okay. Uh, about the Civil War, uh, what opportunities did it provide for white and black women in the South to publish, to edit, uh, and what did they do with those opportunities?
1: Well, it was mixed. I mean, on the one hand, uh, the opportunities were limited, uh, not only because people's attention was focused on, on um, the exigencies of war, but also because... The ability to obtain paper and the ability to get something printed and, and the cost involved, and not to mention mm-hmm. the ability to, to uh, move things throughout a postal system that had, had obviously been put in dire straits, meant uh, that there were a great many obstacles to both men and women who wanted to publish uh, newspapers or magazines during the Civil War, but right. nonetheless they did so. Some of them uh, at, at uh, great personal uh, commitment or cost. Uh, the first uh, African-American production that we know in the South uh, is called The Union, or, or uh, it was also printed in, in French. It was called La Union uh, out of New Orleans. It was it was a bilingual paper, and um, it's, uh, I don't know very many people who, who have looked at this either. Uh, there's a, a, a well-known book by a woman named Penelope Bullock and, and some others who have looked at African-American press associations and, and the history of early African-American journalism in the South who have noted this, but I don't think anybody's done uh, an in-depth study of these kinds of productions. So that, that came out in about like 1862, 1863, and so despite the obstacles, and, uh, of which, as I said, there were many, uh, there were women, both black and white women, who, who did start magazines during, during the Civil War. Most of them were short-lived. Most of them lasted only an issue or, you know, a dozen issues.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But again, that was true. <laughs> that was true of the period yep. before the war as well. Uh,
0: you know, in American history, we tend to uh, periodize. Uh, the Civil War is, you know, uh, obvious. it's a watershed. That's not going to surprise anybody. Um, but sometimes those periods work better for... Some areas of history than for others uh well and one thing we we call the South in this later period is the new south um, what was new about the literary landscape for women in the new South, and what wasn't new i mean so in other words, to what extent was the Civil War really a watershed in for uh for literary minded women in the south, and to what extent was it not?
1: Well, in terms of continuity across the century, um, there were white women who were active all, all in every decade uh, as editors of, of periodicals. So in, in that sense, there's, there's a lot of similarity. And in some ways, the women of the antebellum period, the white women who edited their own periodicals, were even more outspoken uh, than their sisters who became editors later on in the century. But there's a a tremendous difference between pre-war and post-war South in regard to African-American women's contribution, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, As I said, before the Civil War, there are Northern productions, uh, as we know, um, Frederick Douglass's paper and others. But before the Civil War, there there are no magazines uh, that I'm aware of that were edited by by African-American women uh, or men. And after the Civil War, we absolutely do see a watershed uh, moment because, as I said, the expansion of literacy, the the improved uh, abilities to operate openly, particularly in towns, um, mm-hmm. opens up this uh, this amazing literary worlds for both black and white uh, women, and um, I mean b- b- black and uh, men and women, and Another huge, uh, significant difference is the existence of press associations after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Because there's no such association uh, for women, even white women, before the Civil War. And uh, by the time we get to the 1870s and 1880s, not only are there regional and national press associations uh, for both African American and white women, but there are also a lot of them uh, state organizations that uh, are designed to provide an opportunity for female journalists to commiserate on unpaying on, on subscribers or to um, compare notes um, or to improve the, the standards of the profession. And um, I, I wouldn't want to create a, a whiggish in the historiographical sense of this sort of march to progress, Yeah. Um, but it's true uh, that there are a lot more opportunities for women who are interested in magazines and newspapers in the uh, late um, 19th century, than there were
0: in the early 19th century. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're very careful in that epilogue to say, you know, this is not a Whiggish history of you know, the progress of black and white women, uh, but certainly there was a lot of progress that was made in that in that uh, later period. Uh, one of the interesting sort of anecdotes you relate in this book is um, that in 1889. Uh, Two women, uh, Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bisland, uh, made a uh, sort of a transatlantic race around the world uh-huh. uh, you know, to, to uh, sort of compete with the uh, around the world in 80 days phenomenon that was that was big at the time. Uh, what does their what do their travels around the world say about the environment for female professional journalists? Late in the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think it says that the opportunities were were much um, grander than they were in the early part of, of the eighteen hundreds. Uh, early on in the book, I, I point out that there's uh, a couple of uh, young women in southern communities who aspire to be journalists, uh, but realizing that for the most part their dreams are just that—that uh, that they won't have in reality an opportunity to become actual journalists, uh, they actually handwrite their own periodicals. articles, and, um, you know, they draw a masthead, and they, they put a, a fake uh, price on it, and they put themselves on its editor, and they, they, they hand-draw, you know, pretend advertisements, and um, it's sad, because for many of these young women, that's, that's really all it was, an opportunity to in this limited fashion to um, express their creativity. But the opportunities um, in the South after the Civil War are, are much more dramatic. And just one quick example, even if you uh, were a young woman um, and you didn't have access to, for example, becoming you know, a journalist in New Orleans or, or some other big city, uh, there was a craze in the 18, late 1870s and early 1880s uh, of self-publishing. And um, these were usually small four or eight page uh, little little newspapers. And um, they were advertised, the printing presses were advertised in magazines for children all across the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, became this uh, this craze where boys and, and girls across the country would buy these presses, make their own little newspapers. And rather than having to hand-draw them, they, they look a lot more professional. They, they look pretty much like a standard newspaper. Um, so this amateur publishing craze is a, a later manifestation of what is obviously a pretty intense and, and widespread desire among both uh, African-American and white women, uh, particularly girls and young women, to you know, see their names in print, to find a way to express themselves cre- creatively, to sort of mimic and then then expand upon what they saw in the newspapers that their their fathers or brothers perhaps were reading. So um, I think this amateur publishing craze has really been uh, largely forgotten among among historians, but was a major component of, of both early journalism and and childhood experience uh, in the post-war period.
0: So well, so the more things change, the more they stay the same. So. Self-publishing in the 1890s, and right now we're maybe in another boom about self-publishing with you know the blogging and everything else that's that's going around. So that that's something that's sort of a mini movement today. Indeed, um, one of the things you describe throughout this book is the relationship between female writing and publishing and uh, women's rights. And certainly in the late 19th century, well, maybe in the early 19th century, discussion of women's rights was more Uh, sort of theoretical, that it was clear that, you know, the women's rights movement was a a fringe uh, movement that wasn't going anywhere. But in the late 19th century, it is no longer a fringe movement, that the movement for women's suffrage is one that is clearly gaining steam. Um, How did that play out among women writers and publishers in the South in the late 19th century? To what extent were they, uh, you know, in favor of the movement for suffrage?
1: Uh, well, it, there are two different things. Uh, suffrage is one thing. And, and even women who, who believed in gender equality and in, intellectual equality of the sexes, many of them did not promote the right of women to vote. Um, but, yeah, they, right. but they did, uh, e- e- even if they didn't support suffrage for women, they certainly uh, were open in their advocacy of greater equality for women. And that means equality of opportunity. You know, the importance of educating women on a, on a par with, with boys, um, giving women the opportunity to become professionals in a way that um, mm-hmm. they, they thought previous societies and generations had not been allowed to. Mm-hmm. So I think you ask a really important question. Um, you know, the, the northern story of the, the rise of the women's rights movement has some pretty clear, iconic moments. And I've already mentioned the Seneca Falls declaration as, as one of those iconic moments so that y- you could sort of trace the history of the women's rights movement and and, and how it came to um, proliferate. In the South, it, the story's been a little bit different because we don't have those kinds of iconic moments. And um, that's why Anne Freer Scott's book on, on uh, the Southern Lady from Pedestal Politics was so important because she pointed to the ways in which the women's club movement, uh, women forming associations and organizations in, in the late um, 1800s contributed to the emergence of, a, of the women's rights movement in the region. Mm-hmm. And Elna Green and, and others ha- have written excellent, excellent works on, on these topics. What I wanted to, to argue uh, in this book was that while those were the club movement was important. Uh, we missed this part of the story of the emergence of support for women's rights in the, in the South. In other words, uh, that the, the fact that these women found a corner of public culture that they could contribute to and be active in and, and be more radical and, and open than probably anywhere else they could in, in Southern life, um, that they... Seized on on these these this aspect of southern life and culture to make the case first for gender equality and then for um, political equality. So I I really do think that the history of women's journalism in the south is an underappreciated contributor to the emergence of a women's rights movement in the region.
0: Okay. So uh, we have taken up almost I see an hour of your time. Um, so I have one last question. I know you are a department chair of a big department, and you're the co-editor of an important journal. So you obviously are just sitting around, staring at the walls, just waiting for something to do. Uh, so what's next for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely hard to uh, to be productive in your research with uh, those things going on. And I don't stare at the wall so much as I stare at my computer on email for <laughs> countless hours of the day but um actually uh my my recent interests have taken me in the direction of uh, the history of of the lane Bell fell North, particularly uh, the history of kidnapping and the fugitive to slave crisis um, before the civil war so I'm working on a on a on a project that addresses um, the the perilous nature of freedom for African Americans uh, who lived in northern northern communities like the one I live in, in philadelphia <laughs> so um while' I'm, I will always remain interested in, in southern history and, and hopefully we'll we'll continue to, to publish books and articles in that field uh, lately. Um, and this is the beauty of being a, a professor as you can follow your own particularly a professor with tenure, that you can follow, follow your own interests and, and um, mine have, have taken me to to northern communities and African Americans um, in the late antebellum period
0: good. Very, very timely with the uh, release of 12 Years a Slave.
1: Yeah, it would have been more timely if I had started working on this a right. few years ago and, and actually right. had something That's you know to, to publish right now. But, but yeah, well, theoretically, it, it's, it's good timing.
0: So hopefully, it'll be, be the beginning of a wave yeah. that you can just kind of ride in. Yeah, that uh, would be nice. Royalty, <laughs> we should all be glory, so lucky. So we should all be so lucky. Amen to that. Well, uh, John Wells, thanks so much for spending an hour with us.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So once again, this is Dan Kilbride. I'm the editor and host of New Books in American Studies. We've been talking to John Wells about his book, Women Writers and Journalists in the 19th Century American South. You will find a button that will link you to the Amazon page of this book, and we urge everybody to throw John Wells some royalties. (laughs) Uh,
1: Especially now that it's on paperback.
0: Amen. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, So, John, thanks very much. And uh, everybody out there listening, we'll see you next week. So long.